Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 213, A Dark Day for the Royal Navy. Last time, we watched as U-110 was captured and its Enigma equipment removed before the sub was lost forever. And it was this capture that allowed Hut 4 at Bletchley and those therein to finally read German naval messages. Now it was time to find out what could the British Royal Navy do with this information to begin to turn around the hellscape that was the war so far. Just days after U-110 and Julius Lemp disappeared from the face of the earth on May 20th, 1941, the Swedish cruiser Gotland, supposedly neutral, spotted the German battleship Bismarck leaving the Baltic. She was probably heading up the coast of Norway, but what was her final destination, her mission? To make a long story short, this sighting made its way to the British Admiralty, and it was not the first, nor would it be the last, message sent to the Allies by the neutral Swedes. Meanwhile, back at Bletchley, Hut 4, using the Primrose Papers and device, along with the intelligence gathered from the weather ship Munchen, Turing and his comrades were able to decode messages in only six hours. That had real-world or real-war applications. As for the Bulldogs' commander, Joe Baker Cresswell, as if his pride in his crew could grow no larger, as they headed back to Iceland, the destroyer received another message. This one was from the first Sea Lord himself, Dudley Pound. It simply read, Hearty congratulations. The petals of your flower are of rare beauty. And with that, Joe's chest probably swelled just a bit more. But the message that the Bismarck was probably trying to find a way into the Atlantic, that needed a response. And fortunately, C&C home fleet Sir John Tovey aboard his flagship, King George V, had a plan in place already. When he had met with Baker Cresswell to bring him up to speed on Enigma, the C&C had replied, You fellows get all the fun. I just stay here and wait for the German fleet to come out. It's a dull job. Well, the quiet time was over. In fact, the situation was worse than thought because back in January 1941, the battleships or battle cruisers Schornhurst and Gneisenau had been spotted leaving the Baltic Sea. This was only known as the British light cruiser Nyad had a new ship-based radar system and had been in the area. She could not tell the Admiralty much, but those ships were now in the North Sea, and it was only a matter of time before they were in the Atlantic. Indeed, these two powerful ships would reach the Atlantic in what they called Operation Berlin, their attempt to wreck Allied shipping in the Atlantic. There was some damage done to the two German ships by a storm, and repairs were needed. But by February 3rd, they had reached the open waters. Five days later, the two German ships, under the command of Admiral Gunther Lutjens, came upon convoy HX-106, containing 41 ships, going from Nova Scotia to Liverpool. However, the convoy was being escorted by the battleship Ramillies, and Admiral Raider, in charge of the German Navy, had laid down the rule, no attacking convoys if protected by a capital ship. Thus, Luchens ordered his ships to stand down. The two German vessels left the area and sailed to the northwest. On February 22nd, they ran across another convoy, 
which had no escorts. Alas, it had no escorts because the vessels had already offloaded their stores. Still, the Shornhurst sank the fleeing 6,000-ton tanker Lustrous. By this time, the home fleet had sent out warships to hunt down the Gneisenau and Shornhurst. But this they did not know until they, the Germans, picked up the signal from the Naiad and its new radar system. The Germans found out that the home fleet was looking for them. In fact, the raiders had had to leave two convoys unscathed as capital ships were nearby, not protecting the convoys, but looking for the two German battlecruisers. By March 23, 1941, the two ships had sunk 22 Allied ships and arrived in Brest, France, for some R&R. This was all bad enough, but now the Admiralty had confirmed that the Bismarck was exercising in the Baltic. If she and the heavy cruiser Prince Eugene broke out into the Atlantic, along with the two battlecruisers, after their rest and refit, even the home fleet could not guarantee success against these four sea monsters. There was nothing for it. The Gneisenau and Schornhurst would have to be attacked via a bombing raid while still in dock. They could not be allowed to reach the Atlantic again. During the night of March 30th, 31st, a small RAF unit flew towards Brest in northwest France. Bombs were dropped, shots were fired, but as the British planes left, the two German ships were still standing. Next, during the night of April 4th, 5th, more planes came. This time, a 227-kilogram or 500-pound armor-piercing bomb just missed the Gneisen now. This was too close a call for the Germans. The ships were moved from the dry dock and back into the harbor. This gave the Gneisenau more room to maneuver. Also, it gave the Allies more ways to attack. During the night of April 6th, the Gneisenau was set upon by enemy torpedo bombers, and one fish struck true. The connecting torpedo came from a Bristol Beaufort flown by Flying Officer Kenneth Campbell. Now, he had had to get in close, and no surprise, as this was the third attack, the Germans were waiting. The pilot Campbell never made it home, but was awarded the Victoria Cross. That one torpedo had struck near the main battery turret, which let in some 3,000 long tons of water. From this, the ship's propulsion system and a few other systems were taken out. There were other damaged parts as well, so the Gneisenau was returned to the dry dock for repairs. And now that she was back in the dry dock, should the British come again? Sure enough, during the night of April 9th, 10th, several bombers flew over and dropped numerous 25T or 25 long tons of 227-kilogram armor-piercing bombs, and four of them scored a hit. All four landed on the starboard side of the forward's superstructure. Alas, only two of them detonated. Still, as the Allied pilots flew away, 72 Germans lay dead with another 90 wounded. And within days, 16 of those 90 would also pass away. As the Germans had the Gneisen out in dry dock anyways, they began their repairs, but they also added augmentations to the warship. 14 additional 2-centimeter AA guns were added, along with six 53.3-centimeter torpedo tubes amidships. And there were other modifications to better help the battlecruiser deal with its next air attack. The British would send over a few more raids, 
but despite a close call, the Gneisenau would remain safe. But a little later, the Admiralty's worst nightmare seemed about to come true. The Germans had had great success with the two battlecruisers, but it seemed that soon even more powerful ships would enter the fray. The second Bismarck-class battleship, the Tirpitz, was soon doing her exercises in the Baltic. Those series of convoy raids had been labeled Operation Berlin. Next came Operation Rheinumbung, and this would continue Admiral Eric Rader's philosophy of using heavy surface ships against the convoys. But the Turpins was not available yet, and as Admiral Luchens had been chosen for this mission, he wanted to wait. But Rader would not wait. Instead, the heavy cruiser Prince Eugene would accompany the Bismarck. On May 16th, Luchens told Admiral Rader that Bismarck and Prince Eugene were ready to head back out into the Atlantic. They would head out three days later. Meanwhile, four U-boats were positioned along the convoy routes between Halifax and Britain, and 18 supply ships would be ready to support the two German warships. Also, additional crew were put on the Bismarck. Why? These men would be needed to sail back captured merchantmen to German-controlled territory. 1941 could be the year that Britain was starved out of the war. At the time, the Bismarck was based in modern northern Poland. She left there at 2 a.m. on May 19th and headed for the Danish Straits, the waterway between Greenland and Iceland. At 11.25 a.m. the next day, she was joined by her sister ship, Prince Eugene. Together, they were joined by three destroyers and several minesweepers. Overhead were aircraft of the Luftwaffe. And around the same time, Somehow, several Swedish reconnaissance aircraft spotted the now-German fleet and reported that in. The Germans had not seen the foreign planes above. The Swedish cruiser Gotland was sent out to investigate. She reported in, seeing two large ships, three destroyers, five escort vessels, and ten or so aircraft now escorting the ships. It wasn't long before the British naval attaché to Sweden, Captain Henry Denham, was told and he informed the Admiralty. When London found out, Bletchley Park threw in its contribution by saying they could confirm that an Atlantic raid was imminent, per several decrypted reports, and about taking on additional crewmen and asking for navigational charts from headquarters. Now, not taking any chances, the Germans had already sent out several reconnaissance aircraft over Scapa Flow, the main British naval base. The pilot reported seeing three battleships, two cruisers, and one aircraft carrier. Clearly, the British were unaware of the first phase of Operation Rheinumbung. As the sun went down on May 20th, the German convoy reached the Norwegian coast. There, the minesweepers were left back. The battleships and the destroyers continued north. The next morning, the Germans aboard the various ships probably had their coffee ruined as they were all told that British signals had been picked up, ordering reconnaissance planes to find the two German battleships. Sure enough, at 7 a.m. that May 21st, the Germans spotted four enemy planes, who departed rather quickly. That same day, the German flotilla reached Bergen, roughly due east of the northern Shetland Islands, and there they painted their ships 
outboard gray, the standard color for operating in the Atlantic. Now that the British knew the Germans were attempting once again to sink all supplies coming to the home island, Admiral John Tovey of the home fleet ordered the battlecruiser HMS Hood, the newly commissioned battleship Prince of Wales, and six destroyers to join the current two cruisers that were patrolling the Denmark Strait, again between Greenland and Iceland. The rest of the home fleet was now on high alert, but hoping it wouldn't come down to a naval battle, the RAF sent over 18 bombers to the fjord where the Germans were, but the weather stayed nasty enough to negate this attempt. At 7.30 p.m. on May 21st, the two battleships and the three destroyers left Bergen. Only then did Raider inform Hitler of what he was about to do. Der Fuhrer listened and grudgingly approved. He liked the idea that so many enemy supply ships were being lost, but felt uneasy about exposing his own capital ships to the British. Attempting his own sleight of hand, or at the very least to confuse the enemy, Admiral Luchens had the flotilla leave Bergen, but soon the destroyers were let go too. The two battleships headed for the Denmark Strait to make for the Atlantic. Despite the bad weather, the British had kept sending planes up. Finally, one got through on 4 p.m. on May 22nd. The pilot saw that Bergen was empty. They were too late. This was reported to the home fleet, so Admiral Tovey left Scapa Flow at 10.15 p.m. that very night. By 4 a.m. on May 23rd, Luchens, in command of the two battleships, ordered an increase of speed to 27 knots. They were going to dash through the strait. And now that they were approaching it, they activated their FU-MO radar detection sets. Bismarck was about 770 yards ahead of Prince Eugene. Around 10 a.m., they ran into ice, so slowed down to 24 knots to create more reaction time. Then they had to zigzag to avoid ice flows or drifting chunks of ice. The battleships cruised on, but at 7.22 p.m., their radar picked up the cruiser HMS Suffolk about 12,500 meters, or 13,700 yards, away. The Suffolk dutifully sent a message saying they had spotted the two enemy ships. However, Prince Eugene's radio interception team picked up that signal. Now the British knew of the Germans, and the Germans knew that the British knew. Luchens told the Prince Eugene to go after the Suffolk, but the targeting did not go well at first which gave the British heavy cruiser time to get out of range. She now followed the German ships, waiting for her opportunity. At 10.30 p.m., her sister ship, the heavy cruiser Norfolk, joined the Suffolk. But her path to join the Suffolk led her too close to the enemy ships. Luchens ordered the ships to fire on the Norfolk as it passed by. The Bismarck fired five times, of which three came very close. Shell splinters rained down on the deck. The Norfolk laid down smoke and got out of there. However, there was one major consequence of this engagement. The Bismarck's FU-MO-23 radar system was damaged by the concussion from the ship's own 38-centimeter guns. So Luchens had the Prince Eugene take the lead as her radar still functioned. 
That late evening of May 23rd, Luchens decided to try something clever. He had the Bismarck turn around to slowly approach the two heavy cruisers that were following. In this, Luchens was lucky, as a rain squall blocked visibility. However, the Suffolk's radar was working just fine, and so the two British ships avoided tangling with the battleship. The next day, May 24th, just before the sun rose, the hydrophones of the Prince Eugene picked up two fast-moving, unidentified vessels at a range of 37 kilometers, or 23 miles. Only 38 minutes later, at 5.45 a.m., German lookouts identified smoke on the horizon. We know that this was the HMS Hood and Prince of Wales, led by Vice Admiral Lancelot Holland. Earlier, Admiral Tovey, in overall command, couldn't be sure which way Luchens would come around Iceland, to the north or to the south, so split up his forces. The King George V and the battlecruiser Repulse stayed with him, while Holland took the new battleship Prince of Wales and the famous battlecruiser Hood further west, in case the enemy took the longer, more northern way around. As it turned out, the latter group would get the first chance. Luchens ordered his charges to battle stations. At 5.52 a.m., the range between the two groups was down to 26,000 meters or 28,000 yards, at which point the hood opened fire, with the Prince of Wales adding its might just a minute later. Ironically, Hood engaged with Prince Eugene, but thought it to be the Bismarck, while the Prince of Wales fired on the actual Bismarck. For whatever reason, Luchens would not let either of his ships fire until 5.55 a.m., and that was only after another officer demanded that they fire back. As the British were being the aggressors, they came head on. This only allowed them to fire their forward guns, whereas the two adversaries were firing broadsides. That is, they were able to fire more of their guns, thus increasing their chances of a palpable hit. Still, as neither side scored a hit, Holland ordered a turn to allow the rear gun turrets to fire. But soon after the turn, the Prince Eugene hit the hood with a high explosive 20.3 centimeter or 8 inch shell. A fire broke out on the hood, but it was quickly put out. Holland ordered another turnabout for the hood, but Luchens took advantage of this, and he had both ships fire on the Prince of Wales. This resulted in the Prince Eugene scoring two hits on the Prince of Wales. Again, a fire started, but was contained. Meanwhile, the Suffolk and Norfolk were still about 12 miles or 19 kilometers away to the east, but closing in fast. But then the battle took a turn. As the Hood was finishing her second turn to port, the Bismarck landed another strike. The first two shells fell short, but the third 38-centimeter armor-piercing shell landed true. The detonation lit the 112 tons of cordite propellant on board. Not unsurprisingly, the back of the Hood was broken between the main mast and the rear funnel. Water rushed in, the stern rose, and in eight minutes of fighting, the hood was gone. Only three of the 1,419 men on her survived. Vice Admiral Holland was not one of them. As the hood was sinking, the Prince of Wales scored a hit on the Bismarck, 
but the German ship returned the favor. The German shell found the bridge, but for whatever reason, did not explode. It simply passed through, killing all except Captain John Leach and one other. Everyone else was in pieces. Now, both German ships were free to fire on the Prince of Wales, who, despite gun malfunctions, hit the Bismarck three more times. Still, the German warship came on. At 6.13 a.m., Captain John Leach ordered his ship out of the area. Only five of his 10 14-inch guns were still operational. She laid smoke and made good her escape. It was Empire Day, May 24th, but it was also a day of humiliation. Luchens ordered his ships to the North Atlantic as fast as possible, as those two heavy cruisers were still in the area. Luchens was soon radioed that the ships at Scapa Flow may be dummies, to which he replied, yes, they are dummies, because I just fought the real thing, and won. The three hits on Bismarck should not have mattered, as she was still operational, and the enemy had just lost one ship, and the other was damaged. But then Luchens was told that he had probably sunk the hood, but the Prince of Wales, a battleship, was still out there, not to mention the King George V and the Repulse. In this new light, he decided it was best to head for Brest. Despite an oil leak and oil trail, Admiral Tovey missed Luchens and the Bismarck due to an early morning fog. But the game was not over yet. The Bismarck was damaged, and Bletchley Park was trying to help figure out where she was limping to, so Admiral Tovey could finish her off. But, as nothing has any business being perfect, what will follow will be a series of follies by the British, followed by the death of thousands. <laughs> 